I can't remember a time that I haven't been a sports fan. I have grown up always watching sports and participating in sports. Unfortunately for me, though, I wasn't as gifted with the participating part. Uh, I was always average at best when it came to playing any sport. Um, One of my biggest weaknesses is running. I'm sure that might be hard for you to imagine, but I was never a fast runner. And it's probably why I stuck to baseball, because in Little League I could hit the ball, run 60 feet, and then I got to take a break. (laughs) I got to take a breather. Um, So last summer my wife comes downstairs with a friend, and she's got a huge smile on her face, and she says, Mike, will you run a 5K with me? Um, Sure, honey, because I love you. (laughs) And I asked her where it was, and she said it's at the zoo. right? Now, if you know the Cleveland Zoo you know that there's hills there. And I'm not talking little hills. There are giant hills. And there's one hill in particular that we had to run up that it was so steep that in the wintertime you could ski down this thing. And we had to run up it twice. Right? I'm literally, I had a goal not to stop running. I said, I'm going to run this whole thing. And some of you like runners out there, you're thinking 5K, come on, Mike, you can do that. It's not that big of a deal. For me, a 5K is a big deal. Right, and so I'm running up this hill, and I my goal suddenly went from I'm not going. Uh, suddenly went from I'm not going to stop running to I'm not going to stop. <laughs> like I just wanted to stop, but I, I kept walking. I kept moving my way. In the meantime, Mr. Muscles over here is like jogging past me. He's got a stroller, and I'm telling you, a, the kid inside the stroller like looked out and smiled at me. Like, yeah, I'll catch up. <laughs> Don't mind me. Don't bother waiting. So I reluctantly committed to running the 5K out of a love for my wife. We both finished. I won't tell you uh, the time that I finished in to save myself humiliation, but it was a great learning experience. Um, I remember coming down this, the, the hill, the huge hill, the monstrous hill, the second time. Uh, we turned a corner, and I saw the finish line. And in the finish line, there was just a line, a group of hundreds, if not over a thousand people, cheering me on. They didn't even know who I was, but they were cheering me on. And all I remember thinking is, when I saw that finish line, I felt like all of my energy, that I was re-energized, that I could do anything in the world. And so I started speeding up to the finish line to finish strong. Uh, one of my running buddies who actually likes to run, he does it for fun, which is foreign to me, um, gave me a bit of advice before the race. He said, Mike, I've got one bit of advice for you, and that's don't stop and focus on the finish line. Don't stop and focus on the finish line. Uh, the more I read the words of Paul, the more I'm completely convinced that he was a sports fan. There were often times in his own penned words in the Bible where he would liken the spiritual life or the Christian life to some kind of athletic event. And uh, the passage that we're reading this morning, he actually likens to that of some kind of a race. We don't know if it was a chariot race or a foot race, but there was some kind of a race with a finish line in mind. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Before we read, I do want to map out the text for you. It can really be divided into three separate sections. And I've entitled these sections, Our Race, Our Example, and Our Motivation. 
our race, our example, our motivation. And we'll begin in Philippians 3, verse 12. It says this, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So we have our race. It would be easy to jump into the meat of the passage, the entree, the main course, but I don't want to skip over the appetizer because Paul's first eight words are packed with application. They're packed with application and it sets the stage in the context of the message and the rest of the passage. In verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained all of this. Not that I have already obtained all this. Paul is simply stating, I am not perfect. By any means, do not look at me and say, Paul is perfect, so we need to follow him. It's a humble statement, actually. Paul, to this point, when he's writing to Philippi, the church in Philippi, he's been a Christ follower for probably around 30 years at this point. So I don't want to blow over this. It would be even, it would be easy for Paul, who is often revered as like the most holy person to ever walk the planet, to write to Philippi and say, hey, follow my example because I, I got all the right answers. I know what I'm talking about. I'm spiritually up here and you're spiritually down here, so imitate me because I know what I'm doing. No. He doesn't say that. He says, I haven't obtained all this. I am not perfect. Paul was never satisfied with his own spiritual accomplishments. He wasn't satisfied about where he was. He wanted to continue to grow. We often set markers and expect results in our business world or in our life goals and our family goals. So why wouldn't we do this in our own spiritual life? A lot of us grow spiritually lazy or stagnant because we refuse to ask ourselves the hard question. The hard question of, what do I need to learn? How do I still need to grow? What do I need to work on? And if you're anything like me, you'll relate to the fact that sometimes I've been caught in the trap of saying, 
you know, I don't really get anything out of the sermons anymore at church. I don't get any more out of the worship. I don't get any more out of my prayer life. I don't get any more uh, out of my time with God. Don't get me wrong, the preacher that stands behind this pulpit has a fundamental responsibility to deliver God's Word to you in a truthful and a clear way. However, if you're sitting here saying, I don't get anything out of the sermons, and I also don't get anything out of the worship, and I also don't get anything out of my prayer life, and I also don't get anything out of my personal time with God, then perhaps the problem isn't with the man behind the pulpit. And you have to ask yourself that question. Don't fall into that trap. If Paul sits here and says, I haven't obtained this, and I haven't become perfect, then who am I to say that I'm done growing? As long as sin is still present in your life, you must press on towards the goal, towards the prize. And so, Paul presses on. And he presses on for a reason. He presses on for a particular thing. It actually says it. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's the end of verse 12. In other words, we pursue Christ because Christ first pursued us. Paul pursues Jesus because Jesus pursued him. He's probably sitting here writing this and he's recalling how Christ pursued him. He's saying, one day I was walking on the road to Damascus, minding my own business, and then all of a sudden there was a bright flash, a bright light, and I was on the ground, and my men were on the ground. It was so bright, and I was blinded. And all of a sudden I heard a voice, and the voice knew my name. And the voice called out to me, and he said, why are you persecuting me? So I asked him, who are you, Lord? Who are you? And the voice replied, I'm Jesus. Now get up, because I'm going to make you a servant and a witness. I'm going to make you a servant and a witness. Christ is saying, I'm going to make you like me. And so Paul pursues Christ to become like Christ, because Christ pursued us to become like him. We pursue Christ because he pursued us. Our life is a testament and a response to God's call on our life. What we do from here on out, once Jesus has called us out of what we once were, our life is a response to him calling us out of our sin. As we continue in verse 13, Paul boils down this race or this pressing on to one basic strategy. If you watch sports, um, you wouldn't be surprised to know that they spend a lot of time making a strategy, making a game plan, pursuing some kind of strategy. In baseball, every single new batter that comes up to the plate, they have a different strategy for. And they do that every single game. And so we need to have a strategy. And Paul takes this pressing on and he boils it down to one strategy. How, how does Paul press on? Well, it's twofold. There's two parts to it, two steps He first forgets what is behind. He forgets what has already passed. Does does this mean that Paul has simply forgotten his sin? He doesn't know that he used to sin. Let's take a look at what uh, Paul's past was a little bit like. You don't have to turn here, but 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16 talks a little bit about Paul's past. And this is Paul writing. So he himself is recalling what he used to be. 
He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He later goes on in that same passage to describe himself as the worst of all sinners. So what has he forgotten? Obviously he hasn't forgotten that he's sinned, so how can he forget the past? It's a similar principle to what you would find in Hebrews 10, verse 17. God is talking, or the writer is speaking on behalf of God, and he says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So has God forgotten our sins? Has he simply just put that memory out of his mind and forgotten what we've done? No. However, he no longer holds these sins against us. If we come to Christ, he no longer holds our sins against us. He no longer lets that influence his decision about reconciling us to him. Our debt has been paid, and I can't try and pay a debt to God that he has already cleared me of. And so in the same way, Paul doesn't let these past things influence his continual pursuit of Christ. However, there's more to the point. He doesn't say, I must forget all of my past wrongdoings or shortcomings. He says, I must forget what's behind me. I got to forget what's behind me. And so not only, not only do we have to forget the shortcomings, but you also have to forget your achievements, your spiritual attainments, lest you grow lazy and not continue to press on. It would be easy to look at where you've come as a Christian, where you've come as a Christ follower, and say, I've arrived. I know all the answers. Once again, not that I have already obtained all this. I am still not perfect. If you have come to a point where you claim to no longer be growing, you may be looking at your past achievements as enough to hold you up. In a race, if we look behind us, it could be costly. Not only does Paul forget what he's past, but he strains toward what is ahead. And when he uses the word straining, he is talking about just every inch of his body is straining towards the prize, is stretching for the goal. It is a deep, determined desire to reach the finish line, to pursue the goal. When I, when I ran the 5K, I can tell you the days after, once again, I'm not a runner, there were muscles in my body that were sore that I didn't even know I had. And the same should be true in our spiritual life, in our Christian life, as we pursue Christ. We need to strain for it. Every part of our body, mind, body, and soul, should be straining ahead, pursuing and pressing on towards this goal, towards this prize. So don't hold on to what's in the past, both good and bad. But stretch, reach for the prize. 
You might be asking, well, Mike, what is the prize? What is this prize? He's talking about this prize. What's in it for me? A prize sounds like I get something, right? So when I finish, when we played Little League Baseball, we would finish and I'd always get like a snack or ice cream or something, right? Is that what the prize is? What is this prize that's in it for me? I can tell you one thing that the prize is not, and it's really important to understand this. The prize that Paul refers to is not salvation, What he is referring to is not salvation because he reminds us later on that we are already citizens in heaven. We've already, we've already uh, been granted salvation. If he was saying stretch and strain and work for the prize, then he would be preaching a gospel of works. And that's not what he's saying. So what is the prize? The prize is Christ likeness. Becoming more like Christ. If you look um, near the beginning of chapter 3, um, in verse 8, he says, I can, he's talking about his past achievements. And he compares them to sheer rubbish. Everything I've gained in this earthly life is rubbish compared to the knowledge that I have found in Christ. The prize is Christ. In this Christian life, you're either becoming more like Christ or less like Christ. And remaining stagnant, remaining lazy, is merely our sin's way of tricking us into backsliding. It's merely its way of pulling us away from Christ. So we have our race. Paul knows that it's not... Good to do this alone. So he tells us in verse 17 to follow his example. He's giving us our example. Follow his example because he in turn is imitating Christ. He's saying, imitate me because I am imitating Christ. So therefore, if you're imitating me, you are imitating Christ as well. He instructs us to take note of others that are imitating uh, imitating Christ as well. So he's making much of Christ and less of himself. He mentions earlier in the letter about Timothy and Paphroditus. Those are two men that were imitating Christ. He's probably alluding to them. Follow them because they're imitating Christ. These are good people. In the same way, us, 2,000 years later... We need to imitate somebody who's imitating Christ. We need to imitate Christ, but we need people in our life who have gone before us, who can mentor us. They need to help us on, the, on this race. And the reason we need these people is because there are so many others who are trying to desperately pull us away from Christ. And Paul mentions a little bit about them in verses 18 to 19. We don't know exactly who he was talking about. We think that he has a specific group of people in mind, but we're not 100% sure who it is. But listen to how he describes them. For as often, uh, for as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears. He's crying when he's writing this. This brings him tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. From what Paul says, we can safely say that whoever these people are, are either adding to the gospel or taking away from the gospel. They are either making more requirements for the gospel or they're saying the gospel isn't isn't sufficient. Thus, they're enemies of the cross. 
And Paul is putting out a warning. In psychology, it is often explained that we exist for our own satisfaction. But God's Word tells us that we exist to glorify God. And this is why Christianity can't be about a feeling. It can't be because it makes me feel good. It can't be because I'm satisfied. In turn, it will be fulfilling. It will be satisfying, but that's not why you follow Christ. You follow Christ because it's the truth and because it glorifies God. And in turn, it will fulfill, it will satisfy. But sometimes this life is hard. And there are going to be moments in your life where it does not feel good to follow Christ. So it can't be an earthly, self-satisfying way. So this is a warning from Paul to choose your mentors well. And that's a question you can ask yourself. Who is my mentor? Who am I imitating or modeling my life after? Are you even able to discern the difference between the man described in verse 17, who imitates Christ, and the man described in verses 18 and 19, the one that leads to destruction? How do you discern the difference? The only way to be able to discern the difference is to do your part in studying God's Word. Don't take my word for it. Pour your life into these Scriptures. If you are a Christ follower, God has promised that the Holy Spirit will teach you His Word. So plant your feet in it and never stray from it. Last week we had a question and answer time at youth group. Um, I like to do this about once or twice a year so that we can kind of get a beat for what the, what the youth are thinking and the questions that they have on their mind. And you'd be impressed at some of the, the questions that they asked. One question that came through, I don't know who, who submitted it, but they, they asked, how can you tell the difference between a Christian gathering and a cult? The way you tell the difference is that you know God's word. Because there are, once again, so many people that are trying to lead us astray. There are so many people who claim to be on Jesus' side, but they do not declare Him Lord and Savior. They claim to be His follower, but they will not call Him their Lord. They will not call Him God. And without a healthy understanding of God's Word, you could be led Stray. And it's dangerous. Because if their pattern leads to destruction and you're following their pattern, then you're going to be led to destruction. And Paul loves us enough to warn us about these things. So Paul describes, after he describes these people who have destruction in their future, he talks about us as Christ followers. If we are authentic Christ followers, we also have something in our future, but it's not destruction. It's something much greater than that. He picks it up, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. The Philippians would understand this well because the Philippi was a Roman colony. Even though they were hundreds of miles away from Rome, they had Roman citizenship. Okay, So if you were living in Philippi, you were considered a Roman citizen, even though you were absent from the actual city. 
And they followed Roman law. They were under a different set of rules. Citizenship is the place where one has their official status. It's where your name is written in the official ledger of residency. It's where you belong. And Christ followers belong in heaven with God. The Christian life is governed by a separate set of rules than the self-satisfying earthly rules. If you have confessed with your lips and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you are already considered a citizen of heaven. And you are no less secure than the ones that are already there. And this is our motivation. This is our motivation. Genuine Christianity lives in light of Christ's glorious return. The actions that I take and the decisions that I make are grounded in what Christ already did on the cross and they're going to be fulfilled in what Christ does in his glorious return. As one commentator put it, he asked the question, are you homesick for heaven? Are you homesick for heaven? Are you eagerly awaiting the day, as Paul writes, when Christ will transform our lowly earthly bodies into bodies like His? Are you eagerly waiting for that day? Set your eyes on the finish line. Set your eyes on your home. Because that should give us the motivation to press on. When we see heaven in sight, it makes everything we experience a lot easier or bearable. About a week ago, the biggest news in the sports world was the fact that LeBron James decided to go back to the Cleveland Cavaliers to play basketball. If you don't know who LeBron James is, he's arguably one of the best basketball players in the world, uh, and he's from Akron, Ohio. Uh, which is just a few miles south of Cleveland, and he played seven years with the Cleveland Cavaliers and then in turn decided after seven years that he was going to leave and play for the Miami Heat. Four years after that happened and two championships for Miami, LeBron decided, I want to go home. And so he announced that it was huge news, and his announcement came via a uh, Sports Illustrated essay, an article in Sports Illustrated, published in Sports Illustrated, simply entitled, I'm Coming Home. I'm Coming Home. And I want to read just a few excerpts from this. This is what he says. He says, Before anyone ever cared where I would play basketball, I was a kid from Northeast Ohio. It's where I walked, it's where I ran, it's where I cried, it's where I bled. It holds a special place in my heart. People there have seen me grow up. I sometimes feel like their son. Their passion can be overwhelming, but it drives me. My relationship with Northeast Ohio is bigger than basketball. He goes on later in the essay to say, I always believed that I'd return to Cleveland and finish my career there. I just didn't know when. I have two boys, and my wife Savannah is pregnant with a girl. I started thinking about what it would be like to raise my family in my hometown. I looked at other teams, but I wasn't going to leave Miami for anywhere except Cleveland. 
And then he finishes by saying, this is not about the roster or the organization. I want kids in Northeast Ohio to realize that there's no better place to grow up. Maybe some of them will come home after college and start a family or open a business. That would make me smile. And he finishes by simply saying, I'm coming home. At the news of this celebration, there were literally people in Cleveland dancing in the streets because of how excited they were. But if you paid attention to sports talk radio or were watching, it was generally celebrated across the country. People were excited about this. Even if they weren't from Cleveland or weren't a fan of the Cavaliers, they were excited about this news. And all of all this story tells me is that in the innermost part of our hearts, we long for the story of redemption. We long for home. Because like Dorothy Gale said, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. A White House press secretary the day of LeBron's announcement put it very well, and I think it defines our passage uh, quite well. As w- Somebody asked if President Obama had heard the news that LeBron was going to Cleveland, and this was just during the daily briefing. And the, the secretary of press simply, he simply said, um, I don't know what his response is. However, it's a powerful statement that shows the value of the place that somebody calls home. It's a powerful statement that shows the value of the place that someone calls home. Christians, our home is heaven. And that is the most valuable thing that you will ever, ever find. Is being able to stand before God and be reconciled to Him because of what Christ did on the cross. And that should be motivation enough to continue to press on towards the goal and obedience and become more like Christ. Keep the finish line in mind and make your decisions in light of that day. I want to end with a quote from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity because this is just a great conclusion and it ties really everything we've said into the picture. Lewis writes, To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, a less worried way, Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. Press on towards the goal and keep heaven in mind.